Hi, my name is Pastor Daniel. I'm so excited you're taking an opportunity to watch this sermon. We believe that any time we open the Word of God, that we have an opportunity to be changed because the Bible is the actual live Word of our Heavenly Father. And we hope that this impacts you in a positive way. A quick word of caution, and that is that this sermon that you're about to watch is by no means uh, the church. It's not a substitute for a church. It's not a substitute for a pastor in your life. The church is not a building. The church is the body of Christ, a group of believers doing life together, worshiping and pursuing Jesus together. In no way should this be any sort of primary discipleship in your life, and in no way should this replace the pastor that somewhere God has called to shepherd you. We hope sincerely that you're part of a local church somewhere. And if you're not, I wanna encourage you to go find a local church to be part of, because for all of the ups and downs and messiness of the local church, the Bible calls it the bride of Christ. It is the hope of the world. And you need to be part of one because it'll help. If you don't know where or how to find a local church, we'd love to help. You can simply go to our website and email us at hello at resurrect.church and we'll do our best to plug you in. We appreciate your time. We hope that this supplementary discipleship impacts you in a positive way. We believe the Bible has a profound impact on us when we allow God to speak to us. Thanks. Theology without doxology, you just have dead, cold orthodoxy, which is horrible, right? On the other side, you have the people who say, ah, forget about theology, I just want to praise, right? But if you have doxology without theology, you actually have idolatry. My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the executive pastors here at uh, Resurrection Church. And we're in week two of a series called Teach Me How to Church, in which uh, what we're hoping to do is uh, asking you to kind of set aside all of uh, your history with church and, and sort of the preconceived ideas that we all have, because for any of us that have been in church for a while, we, we have ideas of how church is supposed to go, uh, whether those are traditional ideas, whether those are specific things that are personal to us or, or family tradition, uh, we have ideas of what church should look like. Some of those might be really positive. Some of those might be really negative. You might have some, some church hurt. And so what we're asking to do is instead, because um, we'd really like to get to the bottom and, and build back up of what the Bible says about doing church together, we ask you to set those aside. And we started last week, uh, and, and, and we started in Ephesians 4.1. And we just looked at this, this one verse last week and spent a bunch of time on it. And if I'm honest, it probably seemed like we didn't really talk about church at all last week because we were just talking about walking the walk, walking a walk that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called when we were saved from sin. And uh, if you weren't here, uh, just quickly, we, the recap is, 
We're in chapter four of Ephesians, so there's a big transition point from the first three chapters of Ephesians into chapter four. And in that transition point, what we see is that Paul, who's writing this letter, is pointing back at this foundation of three chapters worth of really what is doctrine and theology about the goodness of God and about the preeminence of Christ and about the inheritance that we as sons and daughters of the king, if we've been saved, have. And, And that now, because of that, we should, you and I, be compelled to walk out or live out this Christian pursuit. Walk. We talked a lot about walk. Walking, not running. Walking, not flying. Walking, not plopping. Thank you. So why is this about the church? Because it seems like this is about the personal pursuit of Christ, and that's really what the verse reads as. Um, In fact, we'll read a little bit more of that today, but I think a natural question when you read Ephesians 4.1 is, is this really about the church? Is this about my personal pursuit of Christ, or is this about the church? And the answer to that is yes. It's, It's about both. You see, the Christian life is a group activity. The Christian life is the group assignment you got at school. Now, some of you have really bad memories of group assignments at school because you were the one that did all the work and, every, and the other people were the ones that, that didn't do the assignment. But, but the Christian life, it's inseparable. In the Bible, there's, just, there's no example of this walk that we see in Ephesians 4.1 being done by yourself. You just don't see it. And so when we're reading Ephesians 4.1, even though it seems like it's really talking about you and I living out and walking out this faith that is worthy of what Christ has done, it's not talking about you and I doing that by ourselves because that doesn't even exist in the Bible. It's it's supposed to be done together. And so yes, all of this that we're reading through is about me or it's about you. It is. In fact, uh, turn to the person next to you and let them know that this sermon is about them. Go ahead. I know you've wanted to do that many times in your life anyways. This is just your opportunity. There's two massive misconceptions about the Christian life that are refuted continually in the Bible, but they're going to be refuted here in Ephesians 4, and we're going to be doing Ephesians 4, 2 today. Uh, The first misconception is this. The imperative parts of the Christian faith are assertive, not passive. The imperative parts of the Christian faith are assertive, not passive. That's number one. Number two, the Christian life can only be adequately lived out in active community. The Christian life can only be adequately lived out in active community. Let me paraphrase both those points so that they're easier to remember. In other words, the walk is not a plop. The walk is not a plop. And number two, the walk is a group walk. It's a family walk. It's not a solo walk. You don't go on a walk by yourself. And and, and we've got to uh, throw out those misconceptions and some of the other misconceptions that we have about church, particularly American church, because that's where we live and that's where we go to church. Let me start with this. If you're trying, if you come to church and you're trying to find problems in the church, 
you won't have to look very hard. You don't even have to look past me. Like, the most shallow of investigations are going to uncover a lot of problems because we're here. Does that make sense? And so anytime you start to talk to someone and they're like shopping churches and they're telling you the things that they don't like about the church, you're like, well, yeah. (laughs) Well, of course. So, So if you're trying to find reasons not to commit to the work in the trenches of ministry, there are plenty. There are lots. I read a quote uh, this week, and it's just kind of about the attractiveness of life, right? Especially American life, because, man, we're all, I'll be really honest, we're really wealthy. Like, we're really rich people. If you live in America, you're a rich person. I just want you to know that globally, right? You don't think of yourself as rich. I understand that. You think of yourself as scraping by, whatever that is. But, like, globally, you are a wealthy person in the context of this earth. And uh, this pastor said, Most of us have chosen heaven over hell, but not many of us have chosen heaven over earth. That stings a little. I didn't say it, so I can't get in trouble. Okay. If you run from the church when things get hard, you will delay the hard work God is doing in you. And I'm not saying we shouldn't hold churches and pastors to a high standard. I mean that in every close relationship in your life, there are going to be wrongs, there are going to be wounds, there are going to be mistakes, there are going to be faults and a need for forgiveness. And so you can't run from that. And you don't shop for it. And you don't plop. Those are, those are all misconceptions about the church. So, so if I have someone that comes to me and says like, you know, what, you know what, do you, what do you think about this other church and what they're doing? Are they preaching Christ crucified? Are, are men being saved? Oh, man, I love them then. I love them. And listen, um, I will sit down and tell you uh, methodically the issues that I have with that local church um, right when God gives me time, which will probably be somewhere after they bury me. That's when I'm going to have time. So if you're asking me, like, well, when you say commit to the local church in order to do this walk, you mean your church. I do. I also mean Pastor Alberto at the Collective. I, I also mean Pastor Roger at Valley. I also mean River Lakes or, or Canyon Hills or any other church that will preach Christ crucified. And listen, you could find issues with those churches too. And I'll start working on that when I run out of my own issues to work on. Does that make sense? So if you want a a statement from Pastor Daniel about what he thinks about the local church, I'm going to get to that right after they bury me when I have time. Because right then, then I won't have issues that I got to go work on. So I'm not just telling you you need to get into this church and not plop. I'm telling you you have to get into church and commit to it and get to work because there's work to be done. All right. Commit to the walk. Commit to the walk. Now, I wish, this is, this is unfortunately my personality, that I could burn the ships like Cortez did when they, got, when they got to Mexico so that there was no turning back and that we were just forced to go do the ministry. Unfortunately, this is, a, this is American church, meaning you have lots of alternatives on a Sunday morning. Commit to the walk. Commit to the walk. Now, 
What we're going to do, we're going to go from Ephesians 4.1 to Ephesians 4.2. Ephesians 4.1 is Paul talking about the walk. Ephesians 4.2 is Paul telling us what the first few steps of the walk look like. So we've established, the Apostle Paul has established the goodness of God and Jesus in salvation. He's established that you and I should be motivated and empowered by the Holy Spirit based on what has been done for us and what is in store for us in the future. We've established, I hope, if you're back here this week, you've established that the walk is worth it. We're going to commit to the walk. We're not going to plop. We're going to get back in here and figure out what this walk looks like. So what do those steps look like? This is Ephesians 4, 2. It's going to talk about what it looks like now to follow the work of the Holy Spirit, begin to walk a walk that is worthy of the calling. This is Ephesians 4, 2. You ready? This is going to be the most important foundational steps of living out the Christian life. Verse 2. With... How do, we do, how do we walk this walk? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, in the, uh, at the time, in that current Greek-Roman culture that existed in the first century, uh, the idea of humility and gentleness w- were uh, countercultural. They were, they were weak character traits. In fact, it was the exact opposite of what that culture was preaching uh, and what it valued in its culture. It was all about sort of the super bravado, uh, that, that we would say like mega-souled, great-souled, man-among-men type of uh, personality. And so uh, this idea of humility or gentleness or, or, or bearing with one another were slave-like qualities. It was, that's what servants would have, not what, not what great people would have. These were different things. You and I have heard this, these types of terms around church if you've been getting drugged into church, but, but they hadn't. This, this would have been very odd. Now, these are five stepping stones, the five stepping stones, the five sort of fundamental, foundational steps to begin the Christian walk are these five and, and they're the most important. Now, why are they the most important? They're the most important first and foremost because these steps, these traits, these characteristics, and these spiritual fruit, this is how Jesus will describe himself. So of all the things that we could aspire to do and be and produce in our life, I would, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just submit to you that what should be the most important are the ones that Jesus described himself as. Because if the walk of the Christian life, if the pursuit of Jesus is to be transformed to look more and more like Jesus, then we should know what he looked like, right? So they're important. They're the most important. And secondly, because the entire formula of transformation, that is Jesus and the Holy Spirit making us more and more like him, the entire formula of transformation involves these elements. So the recipe of biblical community does not work correctly if we don't use the right ingredients. So it's one thing to say there's this recipe of doing church together. It's a whole other thing to say, did you even get the right ingredients so that the recipe will work, right? So you could have a great recipe for salsa, but if you decide that what you're going to put in salsa is not tomatoes and onions and jalapenos, but instead I'm going to put in cauliflower, beets, 
and celery, your salsa's not gonna taste good. It's gonna stink. No one's gonna eat it. Didn't matter how good the recipe was, right? Got the wrong ingredients. So we need the recipe and we need the right ingredient. This is a no-duh statement, is it not? And yeah, we miss this a lot. And I'm gonna show you how we miss this. We miss this a lot. And we get caught up thinking that the, the fun, fa- foundational, fundamental ingredients to doing church together are, and we, we have this list, and it's a terrible list. They're not bad things. They're just not these things. And next thing you know, you got somebody leaving the family of God, leaving the local community of, of believers that they've been with, and you're like, why? And they're like, well, we didn't like the blank, and it has nothing to do with this. Now, five things, okay? But the first that we're gonna look at is an internal character trait. It's, an, it's like an attribute, it's internal, and it leads to an external fruit. So when we see humility, that is a character trait, that is an internal character trait. It's not an external thing. The internal character trait of humility will lead to an outward and external production of fruit that is called gentleness. That is an action or a behavior. So humility, the internal, will lead to gentleness, the external. And then we'll see that again. Patience, the next thing, is an internal characteristic, an internal character trait. And that's gonna lead to bearing with one another or tolerance, that is an external. So. Of the four of the first five, it is this intrinsic thing that's happening inside that you may or may not be able to actually see inside somebody, but what you will see, if it's occurring, is the fruit that is then produced from that type of tree. And then both those together, if they're happening in a healthy manner, will produce love. These are the five that we're gonna look at today. Now, I think that I want to walk through each, each of these things, but I think the th- in studying for this, I felt like one of the, our biggest misconceptions in American church is that we view things like patience, gentleness, humility, tolerance. We view these as passive. We view them as passive, but they're not. They're very active. They're assertive. They're intentional. They're actually really hard work. And and if you plop, you can't do them. If you're a plopper, none of this is happening. When you're plopping, when you sit out at the fringes of Christian community, you can't do them. When you stay disattached, right, you're detached from close community, you can't do them. You'll have to, in order to get to this, be vulnerable and open, and when you're vulnerable, it means you could be hurt, right? That's the whole purpose of Vulnerable means you're exposed, and you can't do these things if you're, you're not willing to be exposed a little bit. And if we're being really honest, there are a couple reasons that most of us sit out on the edges of Christian community, and a lot of it has to do with um, this, this, this fundamental fear of the commitment that if I committed, then they might actually kind of get into my business, and I'm not sure I'm ready to share that business with everybody, right? You gotta get in the game. You have to get in the game. Like, none of this works without getting in the game. We, I could sit and, and I could walk through the five attributes of how to, to have a perfect jump shot in basketball, right? 
And we can study those, and we can look at the physics of those, and we can look at examples of those, and we can look at film of people that do it great. And me telling you all those things, but you refusing to put on a jersey and get out of the stands, is none of it's ever going to matter. Because you're not meant to study these things theoretically. They're, they're application. This is not a word study for Scrabble. It's meant to describe your everyday life, your earnest struggle and work towards it. So, so when I say these things, I, I want you, as you're, 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 you're writing them down, I want you to consider where and how we create these environments in the Christian community so that these things will be produced in us in the context of community because if I'm just studying it so that I can go tell Karen that she's not humble, it ain't gonna matter. Does that make sense? Humility. Let's start with humility. Humility, the actual Greek word for humility here is, is lowliness of mind. We'll, we'll actually see this word used multiple times in scripture, humility. In Philippians 2.3, uh, exact same Greek word is used in Philippians 2.3. It says it this way, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, in lowliness of mind, count others more significant than yourselves. I just want you to underline, if you think, think more significant than yourselves, because how many times have you talked to somebody and they're making some life decision, particularly around the church, around faith, and, and you're, when you talk to them, they say, man, I just gotta look out for me, right? I mean, is, I gotta look out for me, not the American motto? I gotta look out for number one. And what does the Bible say? No, no. God does that, you look out for other people. Right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but humility, any humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, we hate to think of others as more significant than us. For some of us, it's probably our worst nightmare. So, so, so humility is not, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Right, thinking that you're uh, less of your worth. That's not what humility is, at all. You're, you're a child of the King. You are adopted by the King. You have an inheritance from the King. This isn't about your worth. It's not about thinking less of yourself. It's not about thinking that you're not worth something. Here's what humility is not. It's not depression. It's not. Look, if 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 our pews are filled with a bunch of eors. Okay, another day following Jesus. It's not humility. It's not humility at all. It's not a depression. It's not thinking that we're not worth something. It's not false humility. We've all met that person. It's thinking of yourself less. Not thinking less of yourself, thinking of yourself less. You just don't think about yourself a lot. Why? Because I'm thinking about other people. Jesus knew that he was the son of God. He knew his identity and he knew his worth. But I want you to listen to how Jesus is described in Philippians 2. This is 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, about to describe Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not 
count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's humility. I'm not thinking about myself, I'm thinking about others. Now, humility is internal, so we don't see it directly. What we see when, someone, when, when humility is growing in someone, what we see is the fruit that comes from humility. And according to Scripture, the fruit that comes from humility is gentleness. Everyone's favorite word. Right? You turn on the news channel right now so that you can watch gentleness. Am I right? <laughs> Because what we all like to do is find our favorite politician and see them talk about someone on the other political side because they're so gentle. The thing that really gets us fired up in our living room when that person says the thing that we really like and that we really believe politically, we get fired up because they're so gentle. You see the problem here, right? We don't value gentleness as a culture at all. We hate it. What we value is the opposite. Stick it to them. Got him that time. Got the hot take, right? Look how many likes he got on his comment. Gentleness is the outward manifestation of humility. The Bible says that when you're humble, you're gentle. If you're growing in humility, you're growing in gentleness. If you're humble, you're gentle. Therefore, if you aren't gentle, you are prideful. Prideful. If humility leads to gentleness, then if you're not gentle, you're prideful. That's arrogance. Now, here's the problem with that. No one likes to think of themselves as prideful. Nobody, right now, if you came in and I, and I pulled you aside and said, brother, what, sister, what, what are the three things that you're just really struggling with right now that I need to pray for you about? Ain't nobody in here going, pride. <laughs> nobody is, is talking about pride because nobody thinks they're prideful. You all know somebody that's prideful, right? Everybody in here knows someone that's prideful. I said prideful, an image came to mind, and it wasn't you. <laughs> Don't lie to me. You're in church. But it's not us. Because pride is one of the sins that create blind spots in us. There's a couple. Greed is another one. And, and no one ever thinks they're greedy, by the way. Nobody thinks they're prideful. And pride has a lot of definitions, even in the Bible. But, but the Bible particularly would characterize pride as this. It's not, pride biblically is not thinking that you're more than you are. That's not really pride. The Bible would characterize pride as thinking you deserve who you are. You deserve it. You earned it. You see, when you deserve salvation, when you think you deserve God's blessings, when you think you deserve God's providence, when you, think, when you think you're who you are because of what you've done, pride. 
And pride never leads to gentleness. Now, uh, gentleness is not, I'm gonna just keep making this point, passivity or weakness. Gentleness is having great power and not using it for harm. Gentleness is the, is the giant who can deadlift a thousand pounds and is cradling the tiny infant in his hands. Gentle, not weak, not, that, not the scrawny person that can barely pick the baby up. That's not gentle. We don't call that gentle. We call that weak. There's a difference. Gentleness is having great power and not using it for harm. Restrained power. So restrained that I don't feel the compulsion to remind everybody that I'm being restrained. Remind everybody that I am gentle. Remind everyone that I could have chosen to use my power. Humility causes me to not even care if anyone knows how powerful I am. But it's not passive. You never see it as passive in the Bible. We seek out opportunities to demonstrate gentleness. Think about who's writing this letter. The Apostle Paul is not a passive guy. You understand that, right? The Apostle Paul is an assertive, go-getter, type A, get-out-of-his-way kind of guy. And what is he saying? Be gentle. Be gentle. He was a producer. He was not passive at all. So when the Apostle Paul will letter after letter after letter after letter address the church and say, be gentle, I, I, I need you to think, I need you to think aggressively gentle, Right? aggressively gentle, as in like, it's not a passive thing at all. It's an active thing. Like I am going to track you down and gentle you. <laughs> right? The kind of gentle that would leave the 99 for the one. The kind of gentle that would run into conflict to be a peacemaker. The kind of gentle that knows that we're in a war, knows that I'm a soldier, and knows there are people hurting on the battlefield. That kind of gentle. Are you tracking? All right. Aggressively gentle. Now, let me tell you why that's complex in the Christian church. If you started to think about that for a minute, somebody in here would say, well, wait a minute. How do, we, how, do, how do you explain something like Proverbs 27, 17, where it says that iron sharpens iron? Aren't we supposed to be, you know, correcting each other and, and showing each other the truth and, and like making each other better because of that? And like, you're, you're talking about gentle, but, but, but man, there's all this stuff about righteousness in the Bible. And, you know, how, how, how then, how, how, would, how do you even justify these verses? How do you, how do you align these verses if you're going to be gentle? Well, I just, let's just talk about iron sharpening iron. I just, want to, I just want to think of this analogy. This is such a, such a good analogy in scripture. This illustration of iron sharpening iron. Think about what happens when you sharpen a, a knife or a sword. You, you take a file or a, a wedding stone, right? And you, you line it up just right on that blade. Just right, just the right angle. And you take it all the way across the blade. One time and then it's done, right? No? Two, two times? Over and over and over and over and over. Slowly, patiently, 
carefully, intentionally, at the right angle, at the right time, being careful not to cut yourself, being careful not to cut someone else, taking just a fraction off of that blade each time so it's very gentle, is it not? Because if it's not, if you take that wedding stone and you take that blade and you go, bam, and you hit the edge of the blade with it, have you sharpened the blade? And some of us, in our correction with brothers and sisters in the church, we do that. We take scripture and we're just like, bam, I don't know why it's not working. Maybe I gotta be harsher. I don't think so. Right? You and I are going to have to deal with the healthy conflict in the, in the Christian life where we, we do have to go to a brother or sister and correct them. There's a lot of scripture in the Bible about how to go about doing that. And let me just tell you that it is just coded and saturated in gentleness. But one of the phenomenal things about what you're gonna see in the New Testament that we, we didn't have in the Old Testament when Proverbs 27, 17 was written is that uh, we now have two things that they didn't have in Proverbs when this is written. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit if you've been saved by God and we have the scripture. And so because of that, I want you to listen to how we in the context of the church work when it comes to correction and conflict. This is Hebrews 4.12. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now that's surgical in nature, is it not? The word of God, the Bible, scripture, will be used by the Holy Spirit through Christians in the context of community to surgically help remove sin from our life. But it is surgical, meaning it's intentional with great care. It's this, the, the word of God is always described as sharp, not blunt. It's not a bat. We don't hit people over the head with it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Are you picking up what I'm laying down? It's surgical. It's used carefully. We, too often in our zeal, we pick up the word of God like it's a hammer and just bludgeon people to death. That's not how the word works. You and I must have great confidence that the Bible will do most of the correcting for us that they don't need to hear my lecture. They need the word of God. So we have to have great confidence that uh, the Bible will do the correcting. So, so we must be able to point them to scripture. And, and, and then we've got to be able to point them to our own lives. And we've got to have confidence in the word of God. And then we have to steward our correction wisely. We have to steward our words wisely so that they'll listen. I want the pointiest thing about my correction to be scripture. Not my attitude, not my words, not my demeanor, not my facial expressions. Scripture. Now, I want to challenge you with this verse because this verse has just wrecked me. You're welcome. 
Philippians 4, 5. It's Philippians 4, 5. It says this. Let your reasonableness, that is also translated as gentleness, same word, let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That quite literally can be translated as you and I should be known for, hmm, I got a better word. You and I should be famous for our gentleness. Famous for our gentleness. Now, Christians are known for a lot of things. Churches are known for a lot of things. I don't know if we're famous yet for our gentleness. In this era, in this time, are you famous for your gentleness? Are you known for it? Uh, let, me, let me be really clear. I wasn't. Most of my life, I've been famous for my bluntness, not my gentleness. And that's sin. That not only required repentance, it continues to require repentance because my natural default every morning that I wake up is bluntness, not gentleness. I am naturally predisposed to run everybody over and maybe apologize later. That's sin. That's not okay. And so my life over the course of the past two years has just been colored by this constant need to repent and become gentle. Aggressively gentle, but gentle all the same. Patience. Humility leads to gentleness, and then we see patience. Patience is probably the hardest trait in our culture today, amen? Everything about our culture keeps speeding up. Faster and faster and faster. How many of you have been really ticked off because the drive-through took too long? I mean, I will literally drive around first, look at the size of the drive-through line first, and if it's too long, be like, not today, Satan. Just drive away. I'm convinced that Jeff Bezos has made most of his money with Amazon because of Amazon Prime, because you could click it and get it in two days. Instant streaming services. My kids don't know what to do if the tablet is not working. It is mind-blowing. We just live in a now, 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 now culture. Everything is now, now, now. We talked about this a little bit last week that uh, the church is always meant to be crockpots, not microwaves, right? Microwaves just don't work well in this idea of the Christian faith. Now, let me just explain. It is a tough tension. It is a tough balance to have the urgency of the gospel, to know that Jesus is coming again, to know that our time here is limited, to know that there are eternal consequences for the things that happen here on earth, and then be patient. I understand that there is tension there, but just patience comes from this increasing faith that God is really in charge. Okay, just hear me. Patience comes from this increasing faith that God is really sovereign, that we already know the end of the story and he wins. 
And therefore, because of that, we, we don't have to get our way on our timeline because he's in charge. I can still lament and hurt for people that are far from God. I can still, I mean, there, there's still an urgency there, but if God is in charge and if he wrote the end of the story and if I have faith that he did, then, then I can slow down. I mean, Jesus did a lot of resting. Have you ever read the gospels and realized how many times he went away to rest? To pray, even in that week, we just did this a couple weeks ago, we were looking at the week up, leading up to the cross. Wednesday, that week, he took the whole day off. There's nothing about that day, he just rested. They know how to rest. And we don't live in a culture that teaches you how to rest. We don't live in a culture that teaches you that patience is a good thing. But I can't really say that I believe that God is in charge and is sovereign and then constantly be rushing and be angry when things don't happen on my timeline. because then I don't really believe it, right? I only believe the parts of the Bible that I live out. Now, patience, as God is working that in me, will lead to bearing with one another. A better word for that would be tolerance, although that word has probably been colored by all sorts of cultural things lately. But tolerance is probably the right word, bearing with. Not tolerating sin, right? The Bible's really clear about tolerating sin, 1 Corinthians 5, uh, Revelations 2. But, but if, if we begin to have patience worked in us, we begin to bear with one another. Now, a couple things. You can't bear with one another if you're not with one another. Does this make sense? Like, so we keep pointing back to these things and going, guys, this is why church on your couch doesn't work. It just doesn't work. I'm not saying you can't hear good things, but how do you bear with one another when there's no one another? You, listen, you were not called into this body so that you would like everybody that's here. You were called to love them. And the process of God changing you so that you will love people who aren't like you is actually the process. And it doesn't happen when you're not here. And it doesn't happen when you plop. Because when you plop, you just ignore them. You have to get into life with people and then bear with them. Now, what does bear with them mean? What does tolerance really mean? Well, it involves a willingness to forgive and a need for empathy. Willingness to forgive and the need for empathy. And I just want to briefly explain both, very briefly. Willingness to forgive. For a lot of us, me included, the thing that will just stop us in our tracks with any spiritual growth or spiritual development or, or maturation is someone harmed us and we will not forgive them. Some of you right now know exactly who I'm talking about. I don't know who I'm talking about, but you do. And, and, and your growth just stopped because you've been harboring it, you've been holding on to it, you're chewing on it, it comes up in your mind, you have arguments with them in your head that they don't even know about. And the harm was real, the offense was real, but you didn't forgive them. Now I want you to hear something. You don't forgive them when they've earned it. Do you hear me? You forgive them because you were forgiven. They may never be worthy of your forgiveness and you grant it anyways. That's hard. I understand that's hard. I know that's hard. 
But when you fail to forgive, you are burning down the very bridge you're going to need to cross at some point in your life. You have to forgive. And bearing with one another involves being really good at forgiving other people. The better you get at forgiving other people, the more joy your life is gonna have. Let me just tell you right now, and if you want joy and contentment in your life, learning how to forgive, it will well up in you. It will well up in you. Now, learning how to forgive, and there's one other thing, and this is super important, and this is, this is another place the church has failed. So we, we, we've, we've struggled with forgiveness. I think there's times where our church has been really good. All churches have been really good at this, but the second one's really, really, really tough. It's called empathy. And we really hate this word, okay? But, but you don't really believe. I'm not really considering others as more than myself unless I'm willing to empathize with them. Now, here's what I mean by empathize. I'm gonna give you some real applications that'll probably get me in trouble. Making friends. In the last 20 years in the church, in the American church, one of the the, the real bubbling up controversies that we've had is this idea of social justice. This idea that uh, churches should be more socially justice-minded. Um, and that's led us all down these really weird rabbit trails of uh, critical race theory and intersectionality and all these things that probably most of you have never even heard about, but they're, they're hotly debated in Christian circles. Um, and so anytime someone begins to talk about what uh, has harmed or hurt a, a people group, um, or, or a, a demographic of people or an age group of people, we tend to um, have r- ready-made a whole list of defenses of why that's not really true and we really shouldn't empathize with them. And so because of that, um, we've just missed the mark on empathizing with other people that are not like us um, because we've, we've struggled to understand why they're hurting and, and, and then failed to hurt with them or walk with them. But I, I wanna submit something to you um, more in theory and then in practice. In theory, I would say this, the real mark of a gospel church, a gospel-centered church, a church that really values the gospel of Jesus Christ, is not how righteously we'll preach, it's how well we'll walk with those who fail. Do, Do you hear what I'm saying? Like everybody can preach righteousness, but do you know how hard it is, and I think some of you do, to walk with someone who has failed, who's at the bottom, who is really messed up. I mean, really, really messed up and ashamed. We will know as a church, Resurrection Church will know that we are really getting to the gospel center of this thing. When someone messes up bad, I mean, they mess up bad and they come right back to church the next week because they're not ashamed to walk back in here and deal with it with us. And I don't know that we're there yet, but I wanna be there. Now, um, about five, six years ago, um, you probably don't know this about me, but, but politically I'm massively conservative. I was like super far, far right-wing guy about 10 years ago, about as far as you can go. And um, I met a family that I fell in love with. They were the Davises. Sorry, I try to do this and not cry. Um, and I just loved every one of them to pieces. Like just you, uh, Chris, uh, Davis and I, we used to refer to ourselves as twins. Which those of you that know Chris think that's really funny because he's like six foot two and African American. But we were just exactly the same. We, and we would just sit and talk for hours and just absolutely love this guy. And um, they began to really explain how hard it is to be black in a white church. 
Now, I'd heard things like that before and never listened and never cared my whole life until he and his wife and his kids used to just, they just begin to explain what were the smallest things. But as they just added together, I, my heart just broke. So it's the only word I have for it. It just broke. And I began to look at their experience in a completely different light. Now, here's the crazy thing that happened, not just to me, because that was a, a rewarding and enriching experience as I just learned and loved and uh, grew. I think the, the, the thing that I still have at times anger about is in the process of really empathizing with some people of what they were going through and what they were experiencing, trying to, 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 to be the only African-Americans in a, in a white church. Um, as we began to just take steps to love on them and empathize with them, we had a number of people in our church tell others that they won't go here anymore because we're a woke church. And I was like, I don't understand. And what they really meant was that, man, that empathy for those people is inappropriate and it's woke. And I thought, man, how far has American church slid down a hill if empathy, empathy, bearing with one another is woke and inappropriate. That hurts. It does. Because what's going to happen as you and I are transformed by the Holy Spirit and become more patient is we're gonna get really good at considering others more than ourselves. And when they hurt, we hurt. When they go through something, we go through something. If it's a big deal to them, it's a big deal to us. Does that make sense? If we wanna walk with people at their highest points, you better be ready to walk with them at their lowest points. And it's a call to the church to think first with empathy before thinking of ourselves. We should consider when it comes to uh, the change that sometimes we're waiting for, that the change we're waiting for may be in us, not in the other person. And oftentimes what happens as we extend empathy in others is we realize it wasn't them that needed to change in the first place. Bearing with one another, I want you to hear this, this quote, bearing with one another presupposes that loving each other will at times be a burden that it's gonna be hard, that love doesn't come without a cost. So we're headed into this walk, okay? Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, we're headed into this walk knowing that there will be work, that it's active, that it requires effort. That's why you can't plop because bearing burdens is work. It's active and not passive. And these things, these four things, the two internal that lead to the two external will ultimately lead to this word called agape, Love. Now I say agape because there were multiple words that we, we use love for a lot of different things, right? Like you may love Chick-fil-A, but that's a different kind of love than you love your wife, I hope. <laughs> we use love for a lot of things, but, but there were different words in Greek and agape love is this real 
brotherly love. This is the Jesus love. This is I would die for you love that would compel Jesus to go to the cross. Now, I just want to read you. I know I've been talking about the church a lot, and you may go, man, Pastor Daniel loves to talk about the failings of the church and how the church needs to get better, but I, get, I just, I'm gonna read from a different pastor about the church so you understand, like, is it not just me that sees this? This is, uh, this is Chuck Swindoll. It says this. Actually, let me tell you what he's addressing first. You may or may not have had this. I've had this in, in different churches, not just this one, and at different times where someone says, um, I can't, I can't stay here, pastor, because I can't believe that you'd put uh, so-and-so as an usher or, or so-and-so in the coffee shop or so-and-so could serve singing when, when, you know, I know they struggle with this sin. The, Swindoll had the same problem. Here's what he says about misconception that the church uh, can only have people that are righteous. It says, besides, in order to maintain purity of doctrine and practice, we need to break away from believers who aren't living up to our standards, don't we? I'm sure God cheers us on with great delight when churches split over incidentals and a Christian shuns another believer over a difference of opinion, right? Wrong. Brothers and sisters, we need to repent of these ways of thinking and deliberately stop these ways of acting. None of these things reflect a walk worthy of our calling. None of them flow from a life of humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, and love. This is a good place to pause and probe. And let me ask you a few deeply personal questions. Better yet, ask yourself these questions and don't rush to answer too quickly. Are you a gossip? Do you spread rumors? Do you sow discord with the family of God? Do you ignore the major truths that unite you with other believers and instead focus on the minor issues that divide you? Do you quickly lose patience with others? Do you only give to others when you know you'll get something in return? Do you hold grudges, harbor bitterness, foster resentment? If you find yourself guilty of any of these charges, ask yourself, why do I do these things? Where did I learn this? You didn't learn it from Christ. You weren't moved toward disunity and discord by the work of the Spirit. You didn't become a part of the church's problem by pursuing obedience to God the Father. Where did this come from? It came from one or more of three sources, the world, the flesh, and the devil. When I find myself guilty of these things, I need to renounce them. I need to turn my back on them, make amends with those I've hurt and harmed, and throw myself upon God's mercy and claim his forgiveness. I'm gonna do that in just a minute. Um, we're gonna take some time for repentance. Um, but I want you to hear, I, I, I submitted something to you at the beginning of the sermon and I wanna follow up with that now. I said that these things, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, were the words that Jesus would actually use to describe himself. And I just wanna read you that in two different verses uh, today. This is Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, Jesus speaking about himself. He says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, which means humble, and you will find rest for your souls. And Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be, ser to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you ask Jesus to describe himself to you, he would tell you that he's gentle and lowly of spirit, that he's humble.
That's Jesus' description of himself. And this is why the idea here that the first steps of the Christian faith, both individually and as a church, must be in humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Because those are the only ingredients that work with the recipe for the church and the Christian life. So, I want you to think about this in the terms of conflict. Most of this has to do with conflict. How we react, how we view, how we think about, and how we treat conflict. You see, this isn't about a lack of conflict. Because if there was no conflict, I would submit to you that we're actually not being authentic. We're being fake. Amen? If there was never any conflict, we're not actually doing the work. We're avoiding the work. This isn't about sinful conflict, taking conflict and making it a huge deal, taking conflict and not dealing with it the way the Bible would ask us to deal with it, taking a conflict between believers, uh, whether they're minor things or they're major things, and holding back forgiveness, not extending grace, not extending forgiveness, not trying to extend brotherly love. This is not about sinful conflict. That's the world. That's the example outside these walls. So it's not about no conflict, they're avoiding conflict and avoiding the work, and it's not about sinful conflict where we, we blow it up and we hold back and harbor unforgiveness in our heart and we refuse to deal with that either. It's about gospel conflict. That's transformation. That's what, that will require patience, that will require humility, that will require gentleness, that will require bearing with one another in love. So what I want to just extend to you today is this. I'd ask you to do what David did and say, search me, O God, and find if there is any unclean way in me. And as the Spirit begins to reveal to you where you have been impatient, where you have refused to extend forgiveness, where you have been apathetic in your pursuit of Christ and your unity in the body of Christ, where you have lacked gentleness, where you have lacked empathy, repent. The Bible says that repentance and confession of sin is actually one of the most common things. You go to James 5 and it says, meet together and confess your sins to one another. Why? So that we can hold a record of wrong? No, so you can be free of it. Because Jesus already died for it. You don't need to hold on to it. So what we're going to do is we're going to open up our altar today. We're going to have our uh, elders up here and different ministry leaders here if you want someone to come and pray with you. But maybe you don't need anyone to pray with you today. You just want time with the Lord. And you want to come up and you want to just be in humility. You want to go to God in repentance. Repentance is simply saying, I'm going to turn from this thing. I have a recognition that it is not of God and that God is here and that this is actually disobedience to God and I am going to turn from it. I am, I'm telling God, I am rejecting this and I'm saying yes to you. And if you'd like to use the altar or you'd like to come and pray with an elder or ministry leader today as part of that, I encourage you to. If you'd like to stay seated and do that, I encourage you to. I'd like you to move as the Lord leads you, as the Spirit convicts you, as the Spirit prompts you. You move in obedience.